Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It's the New Books in Food podcast. Hi, it's Alan Salkin of New Books in Food. Uh, this week, this episode, we're interviewing Laura Silver, the author of Kanish, In Search of the Jewish Soul Food. Uh, it all started when her beloved Kanish shop disappeared and she went on search for the roots of the humble Jewish pastry. It also, like a lot of great food books, um, involves good food and memoir and family history and what the food means to her. And there's a little, um, a little song, a little dance, a little pie, a little seltzer in your eye. Um, that's, uh, I think that's from Mary Tyler Moore. But anyway, welcome to New Books and Food, Laura Silver. It's great to be here. And so the book's from Brandeis University Press. It comes out uh, May 6, 2014. It's part of a series on Jewish women. Um, so tell us uh, what, first of all, tell us what is a kanish? A kanish, as you may or may not know, is a wrapped pastry. I like to think of it as a pillow of mashed potatoes surrounded by a skin of dough. Now, a kanish can take a lot of forms and it can have a lot of fillings. It can be round or square. Kanish can be oval, it can be filled with savory filling or sweet. The most popular kanish is undeniably potato with onions, an onion-strewn potato, mashed potato innard. And the other, another, other kinds are kasha, which is buckwheat. You can also have kanishes with a sweet cheese. But beyond the specifications of the kanish is what it really represents. And this pastry, like an empanada or a samosa, is a repository for filling, but it's also a repository for stories and memories. And, well, what are yours? Well, mine, as you mentioned, did begin with Mrs. Stahl's, which was a Kanish shop in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. It opened in the 30s. But my family had been going there probably, I'm not sure when it started, but my grandparents had certainly been going there for several decades. And my dad after them. And so when I was a kid, my family, which lived in Queens, would travel for about an hour just to get to Mrs. Stahl's. And it was like a pilgrimage site for us. That's how it began. Now, I remember Mrs. Stahl's. It was sort of under the tracks or uh, where the subway kind of turns um, near Coney Island or Brighton Beach. And as I remember, it used to be its own store. And then at some point it sort of split in half and they were selling like burritos and hot dogs on one side and um, I mean in a way it's like the story of the Jewish diaspora isn't it <laughs> yeah well it did um, Mrs. Stahl's did it was under the subway at Brighton Beach Avenue and Coney Island Avenue and that exactly where the subway turns and yes it did take at some point in I think the late 90s the store did take on what I call a roommate it was a shared space with um with more like a souvlaki kind of place. The place had um, its name in Russian, but it translates to Eastern Feast. Mm. And there was meat on a skewer and a lot of appetizers. And so the store was pretty much literally split down the middle. And one half on the right had this telltale 
um, waist height, orange for mica counter, right. the length yeah. store. And then all these signs in the back, these huge dangling signs with Kanish prices, which had been taped over with newer prices and you know, every variety of Kanish imaginable, mushroom, um, mushroom potato, spinach, vegetable, kasha, potato, sweet, cherry cheese, blueberry cheese. And, um, and then on the left were these like serving, serving table were at, um, you know, a little higher up. And, mm-hmm. Uh, is it possible? And this is—I mean, we're gonna—we'll get more into the story of why you got so involved and interested in this. Um, but and you know, and where it took you uh, overseas and all around the world, you went in search of the of the Kanish. But I was having lunch yesterday with Mark Russ Fetterman, uh, who mm-hmm. runs obviously Russ and Daughters, the legendary smoked fish emporium on the Lower East Side, and. Mark and I both have books that came out last year. His was Mine's About the Food Network, and his was about the history of that amazing store that's one of the few Jewish remnants um, of Jewish culture on the Lower East Side and still attracts a huge amount of people, all kinds of people, all kinds of religions and colors. And um, what, what Mark said to me was, um, well, we, I was complaining that the Kanish store on the corner here on the Lower East Side, which is um, Yona Schimmel, Mm-hmm. is terrible, that the knishes don't taste good, the place is a wreck, um, and tourists love to photograph it because it's so unchanged, but it's unchanged from being bad. And what Mark said was, well, it's always been bad. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to get to a question here, by the way. Um, the, I remember Mrs. Stalls as being good. And yes, I can't th- disagree. Right, and so the question is, is the reason that you potentially fell in love with it because you happened upon a good Kanish and is the Kanish good? Uh, yes. The Kanish but, is... Inherent- I want to add one more thing. Because what Mark oh, said, Mark said, well, this was just peasant food. It was just supposed to be this big, heavy lump of stuff to fill your belly. Are we... Are you... You know, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm not attacking. I'm just wanting to hear a defense. Are you defending a something that was simply just, you know, the cheapest thing that peasants could use to fill their bellies as something that is deserving of 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 something that maybe it's really best left in the past? Well, you know, that's not the first time I've heard this argument. The um, kanish is undeniably a humble food. And it's not nothing too fancy about it in most cases. Um, the writer Vivian Gornick said to me, "Why? Why do you want to talk about the Kinnish? Like, what's so great about it? What's so great about the past? Sort of like people flock to the Lower East Side today. They're looking. They're so they really romanticize a past that was so difficult and ugly and grim, and that no one would really want to live in. But the thing is, the Kinnish has survived, and I think it deserves credit for that." Mm. It's, it's an underdog of foods. I think once you start examining an underdog of foods, it leads you to some really, or led me to some really fascinating stories of people who've been all but forgotten in history. And, um, and I think, you know, the sentiment you expressed that there, the kinish, there's no good kinish there is pretty common. Um, people love to complain about kinishes or the oh, lack yeah? Oh, yeah. of, oh yeah, that's a very popular refrain. Um, oh, you can't get a good kinish anymore. 
Yeah, what are they complaining about? I mean, they're complaining in a way about their success. Why can't you get a good Kiddush? Because there are no, there are very few blue-collar Jewish neighborhoods, everyone who lived in those neighborhoods when you could get a good Kiddush, were people who had it tough. It was rough. That's what sustained the Kiddush, you know, Jewish neighborhoods where people were really struggling to make a living. Like, you can get a lot of good dumplings in New York now, cheap food. Now it's like Chinese food. That's Things true. like that. That's true. So I think um, people, it is a bit of romanticizing the past, but I still think there's something there and that the trajectory of the Kanish charts this amazing history of individuals. And in some cases, people we'd rather forget or people we just like to romanticize without thinking of the real situations of their lives and how those situations led to our prosperity, in fact. When when did the romanticizing of the Kanish begin? I mean, I see in, in your book you've got songs, you've got uh, there's even uh, a note about the first Kanish movie appearance. Yeah, well, the yeah the Kanish first appeared. The first um, filmic documentation I was able to find was in a movie called The Night They Raided Minsky's, and that is. Um, I mean, that film also even, I think it was made in the late 60s, and then, even then it was sort of reflecting on the Lower East Side with this nostalgia. And I think, if, I think it relates to when it was safe to go back to these memories, you know, when it was just far enough away to be filled with nostalgia instead of close to pain. And, um, and in fact, when it's, Start now that you can't get a good Kanish, everyone wants one. But what um, the last owner of Mrs. Stahl's, Les Green, said to me was, you know, everyone said you can't get a good Kanish, but then they move to the suburbs and they come here once a year. How can I support my business with people coming here once a year? Right, that's the Little Italy story. I mean, there was that there was that book, The Land of Our Fathers, right? Wasn't that the sort of beginning yeah. of the romanticization? I can't remember who wrote it right now, but the beginning of romanticizing yeah. that Jewish yeah. ghetto life. What was his, what's his name? Irving Howe. Right, Irving Howe. Um, yeah, that's a definitely part of that movement, looking back. And I think the, now you also see a big resurgence of American Jews who'd like to visit Poland, visit the places where their families are from in Poland. And I think it's not unrelated. You know, enough time has passed, the political situation has changed, and and people have, have enough money to be able to afford a trip like that for a vacation and, and so they choose to come in contact what do they find because you know i always say that there was a mistake made about 15 years ago i wrote an article for the times about the vanishing jewish lower east side which of course was mostly vanished but i went the last day that um ratner's the dairy the dairy restaurant was open um and you know the the tenement museum down here has, has attracts so many tourists and you know I, I like i said i live in the lower east side and there's tourists just wandering around with maps looking for the jews and looking for heritage and you know what they find is some smoked fish they find an old tenement building and if you look you find the guy selling pickles and some great uh, headstones um I think there was a real opportunity to create just like in little italy which really is just a theme park now I think a, a great little theme park could have been created on the Lower East Side with some of the real old surviving businesses that now is just this real spotty thing. And, and uh, I mean, is, is Poland doing better, or is there anything to find there? Well, first of all, I'd say that 
the, I think the Lower East Side is a bit of a theme park in a way. I mean, I, um, I was at the closing of Ratner's too the last day and last, the last day was too late. I mean, already it was sad in there and I had a lot oh, of yeah. memories of being in Ratner's a dare, what's called a dairy restaurant. The onion they, rolls were still good though, up till the last day. Those were good rolls. Well, yeah. I mean, I still look for onion rolls everywhere because that's, you know, another part of my heritage. But for people who don't know, Ratner's was this place on Delancey and um, they had a huge, this huge marquee with its name and script letters. And you know, I enjoyed several Christmases there and I bring non-Jewish friends there to sort of acculturate them to who I was. And the waiters were known for putting their fingers in soup and being brusque. Yeah. Um, you could probably still find some brusque waiters on the Lower East Side, but um, I, can't, I worked also at the Tenement Museum, actually, and I encountered many people coming looking for their past, including a descendant of the Ratner's family. Mm. But um, the thing is, what? and now you find a lot of people would come and say, oh, my kids live down here, so how much do we want to preserve it? And again, I caution against nostalgia. I mean, we just saw this big story in the Times about... Um, Speaker Sheldon Silver, work at, you know, who prevented the development of an apart of this real estate because he wanted to keep the Jewish character of the neighborhood. I mean, at what cost? I think that's an uncomfortable fact for us to think about. You know, what is there? People there. It is a theme park. There's there is the pickle guy. There's Kosar's. What, what they should what they should have done. What Shelley Silver should have done. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of things he should have done that he never did. Um, but anyway, he um, they should have created a clearer heritage area to, to my eye to, to satisfy that constituency while allowing more development and building less ugly crap down here. But um, you're right, and you're right, and there is still stuff. There's Kosar's Bialis, um, although interestingly, the Kosher Deli that opened recently, that closed. Yeah, Noah's Ark. I know they, they were on record for making the largest matzo ball in history, and it was actually made in New Jersey, and they brought it back to New York. But, yeah, I was sad to see that because it was actually kosher. like closed on Saturday kosher, which Kosar's is not. And there is the Jewish character of the Lower East Side that's preserved. People just don't like that Jewish character because it's an Orthodox Jewish character. And that doesn't fit in with people's memories. So, say, if you really want to think about what Jewish past and Jewish future is or any ethnic past or New York past and New York future, it's important to... Be somewhat flexible about the aperture of that lens. Let's talk about the Kanish again for a second. Okay. What what do you think does make a good Kanish? And is there a recipe? Is it something that one can make oneself? Yes, and actually, that's what I advise. You know, when people say I can't get a good Kanish, I say, Well, why don't you make why don't you make one yourself? <laughs> you know, where do you get the best one? And I say, well, Look, I can tell you some places, but the best Kanish is one you make yourself. And why? Because it's homemade. And I think, and it's a lot of work. I won't joke. I once made a hundred on my own in my kitchen, and that took the better part of the day, including, you know, not including the prep beforehand. But um, my book does have a recipe. It's the Mrs. Stahl's recipe for potato knishes. I got from her granddaughters, and they taught me. I was also lucky enough to visit with them. One lives on the Upper West Side of New York. The other in San Francisco. And when I located them, Toby, the granddaughter on the West Coast, invited me out. We had a Kanish baking session and party. And um, there are a few keys. I mean, you have to 
work really. She said, you need a family. Like, you need a small family to make right. some changes. Um, the dough has to be rolled out till it's really paper thin, till you could read the newspaper through it. Um, and I think you just need to keep at it. You know, a lot of people, you need a lot of people, <laughs> or if you're doing it yourself, a lot of time. So you need to make a dough and a filling. Exactly, a dough and a filling. We made potato, the potato filling with onions, and that's the one you'll find in the book. We also made a kasha filling and a another one, a sweet knish, cherries, um, knish with like a cheese, sweet cheese and cherries. And we we went on a trip to the Russian area of San Francisco, then the Richmond, and we went to get the provisions there. So that was like a little odyssey in itself. Yeah especially since they don't have proper stop signs at every intersection over there in the Richmond. Um, so, and then, so this took you to San Francisco, the book, it took you to, uh, where else did you have to travel? Well, a few times, of course, to the Brooklyn boardwalk and around the Lower East Side, but more notably, I went to France because I had this, I heard this rumor that the first Kanish may have been from France and I did study abroad a bit in France in college, so I knew the language and had some friends there. I found a Kanish at, um, in the Marais, which is the, like, the Jewish quarter, or really a street. And mostly it's filled with falafel places, because it's much more Sephardic, with, or with Jews from Spain, Spanish heritage. And, um, but this, the, um, a place called the Yellow Boutique still had, still had Kanishes. Um, they were triangular in shape, and they were kind of like brioches, the consistency of a brioche. So, but they were very yellow, and um, somehow that was shocking and reassuring all at once. I also went to Israel. It seems like an obvious place to search for knishes, because if it's the Jewish homeland, surely there would be some manifestation of this Jewish food that meant so much to me. And I found a knish-like food at a place called Cafe Batya, which is almost like the Second Avenue Deli of Tel Aviv. It's a place that predates Israeli statehood. It's been around since the early 40s. And um, Batya, the namesake, Batya is still alive. She's in her 90s. And the Kanish there was rather odd, though. It was like a ball of mashed potatoes with breadcrumbs on the outside and fried. The center was some meat, but hey... They, if they called it a kanish, I, you know, was happy to give it a try. In Hebrew, it's called a leviva memulet, which means like a fried latka mm. or potato pancake. Now, see, I given a choice between a latka and a kanish, I take a latka every time. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. I feel like you might need to improve your kanish. Um, well, I'm going to try making them. I am going to try. It it's, uh, yeah, it's. I think it's really satisfying and. I will say that I taught a class called Kanish, Kanish History 101 at the Brooklyn Brainery, and one of my star pupils, Noah Wildman, started his own Kanish business. He's also on the Lower East Side, and his place is called Kanishery NYC. His Kanishes are sold on East Broadway at a place called Malt and Mold. Nice. So I'm happy to say I helped spawn, uh, you know, some kind of Kanish renaissance for starters. Hipster Kanishes. Hipster. He's, you know, semi-quasi-hipster. But um, to go back to the question about where the Kanish took me, I'd say the most important place was probably Poland. And first, I had been to Poland earlier just out of curiosity, always out of curiosity for family roots. When I was studying in France, actually, I had a chance to go to Poland. 
but I didn't see any of the places my people were from or the places I thought they were from. However, um, 2008, I went on a roots trip with um, some of my extended family members. And yet we are those people who, you know, feel like it's safe, quote unquote, to go to Poland. And we were in the town of Bialystok, which is in the west, about two hours from Warsaw. And we couldn't find a lot of um, remnants of our family, no proof, really. And Bialystok is a city that was once 90% Jewish. Um, like all the stores in the town square were owned by Jews. Yiddish was the lingua franca. So this is... Bialystok is the name of, and the producers, right? That's the name. Of well, it. right. And, yeah, and people think of it as a joke, but in fact, I mean, there's a reason for that. You know, people identify with that name as Polish because, I mean, if you ask, you know, in Jews of Ashkenazi or Eastern European descent in New York today, I'd say one in ten would have some connection to Bialystok. That's how prominent a city it was in the Jewish, in Jewish life and in Jewish memory. So our last day of the trip, and we were a little disappointed and kind of eager to get out of there, but my cousin had this birth certificate from her mom, and it said, we showed it to our Polish tour guide who read it and said, oh, she's not, she wasn't born in Bialystok. She was born in a small town about 20 minutes from here. What was the town called? Knishin. Really? Mm-hmm. Go on. So that, at that moment, I begged my family, and these are, we're like six people who rarely see each other. We can only meet in Poland, <laughs> even though some of them live in New Jersey. We come together in Poland for this massive trip. I said, please, let's go there now. You know, like, we have to go. This is our destiny. And um, Kanishan, I'd read in the guidebook, had once had a Jewish population, and it had a woman who lived there who remembered the Jews. And I thought, you know, we must go. And also was home to this cemetery, a Jewish cemetery that still existed because it was built around the um, pools of a royal castle, so it wasn't destroyed by the Nazis. It was a logistical mess, so it wasn't destroyed. Anyway, long story short, the next year I went back to Kanishan on my own. Oh, they didn't go? No, we didn't go. It was Those too bastards. Late. Hey! Come on! <laughs> um, the tour guide had to work the next day. Uh, ma, 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 ma. So you had to go back the next year. Okay, go on. You went back. It was nightfall. Yeah, I went. Don't talk about my family like that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, um, hey, you know, people, they've done a lot of traveling. I accept that. Okay. <laughs> I, I apologize and I take it back. <laughs> Thanks. I, um, but yeah, the feelings run deep. It's true. And, um, I went back the next year and there I was in the town of Kanishan, a population 2,000 plus. And I met the town historian who came over on his bike. Now, he wasn't wrapped up in a thin layer of dough, right? He was just a, a man, a person. Right, yes. These are real people. Okay. So um, made of potato on the inside. Okay, go on. No. <laughs> I didn't see any broken skin when I was there. Right. Uh, first, we met with the town, um, so the PR guy, and he, you know, I thought I was joking around. I arrived with these photos of Kanishas because I was sort of looking for any relative would be almost ridiculous. But he, he actually, he didn't, hadn't seen these Kanishas before, but he did know about a legend related to the Kanish. And there are two, actually. One says the Kanish, that Kanishan takes its name from this pastry. Ah. And the other said that there were 
at times at funerals, weepers or these women paid to cry at, at funerals would hand out wrapped pastries or kanisha to mourners to comfort them in their grief. And that was really interesting to me because round foods are typically used in Jewish mourning rituals. And it was also about loss. And it, it seemed like an interesting correlation to the average New Yorker's you know, battle cry of, I can't get a good kanish anywhere. So um, that was an interesting link. And those funerals I was talking about weren't Jewish funerals. They were Christian funerals. So this started to wonder if the kanish could indeed be the ultimate food for conversations about coexistence, some kind of catalyst for healing. And I'd say for me it, it has been a bit. Yeah, I went back to Kanishan just last summer. Well, did you I, find any family members there or anybody who remembered anybody? Obviously not, but I mean, anybody who remembered anything? Well, that woman I had read about had died. Mm-hmm. She was a woman who remembered the Jews. There is a small house museum, which she used to own. And um, the, the um, town historian showed me the names of some Jewish residents, which were had been members of the city council and that was on this plaque was on the back of the church in town mm-hmm. but um so i didn't expect to find anyone but i did find out later in the archives that my mother's mom it was also born in Kanishan. so i am in fact a direct descendant of the Kanish. unbelievable but but the best theory that you have is that the town takes its name from the pastry rather than the pastry having been born there well, yeah, that's what the legend says, that the king was passing through and was served these pastries on horseradish leaves. And then and the king said, oh, he gave one of the women, the bakers, a gold coin. She clutched it to her chest, and the king said, you know, what do you call these pastries, my lady? She said, Kanish, Kanish, sire, Kanish. He said, and what do you call this town? She said, it's a forest hamlet. And he said, from now on, it shall be called Kanishan. Oh, so it is possible that the... Oh, do you know where they came from? The first Kanish? Yes. Well, I'd say it is from that area okay. of, you know, the Pale of Settlement and more in the western area, like, um, a little more to... I mean, let's see. Actually, more eastern Poland. I'd say more eastern Poland, near where Bialystok is today, and then eastward from there. Like I have evidence in parts of Ukraine, even Belarus, and um, that whole swath of land. Had anyone ever studied the Kanish before? Um, good question. There, there have definitely been references. Finally, Go ahead, yeah. Um, <laughs> they were all good questions. All right. Um, <laughs> there were. So there, I did start out by looking at references to Kanishas in PhD theses, things like that. But those were pretty localized, like based on New York food, chapters about New York food. Um, There were some reports in all in Yiddish and Yiddish journals I found in YIVO, and that like it was oral history based on you know how to make baked goods. But again, the Kanish was just one of several pastries mentioned. Um, there's a book written in a kid's poem, rather written in Yiddish about the Kanish that came from Vilna or Vilnius, Lithuania in the 1920s. But in terms of really deep research, you know, it wasn't even listed in Encyclopedia Judaica mm. and that was kind of a blow, but that just, Why it just egged on. 
why is it a blow? Because I felt like it's a quint. I think of it as a quintessential Jewish food. And um, here, the master work didn't even give it a nod. I mean, here we have. So you're, in a way, you found your own roots by chasing the Kanish, which you did not expect to find. No, and but I will say that I was very interested in genealogy before I'd written about some other quote-unquote, lost family members for the Times, people killed in a, an apartment fire on Mermaid Avenue. I'd been looking in microfilm for ages about in trying to find my family roots on all sides. So it was nothing new, but I had, you know, given up the trail or just stopped looking or, you know, lost interest in, for a while. Um, and I had research, you know, in... In the 1970s, my nana, who was the one who was born in Kanishan, she wanted to go visit her cousin in Israel. And she needed a passport, which meant she needed citizenship, which meant she needed a birth certificate from Poland. And my mom, my mom wrote to the Polish government, and they said, nope, we don't have it. Nah, not her, not born here. And now I know why. It was, she had a totally different name when she was born. You know, it just shows how many secrets there are. And I was able to come up with this name thanks to this very expert genealogist, Yale Reiser, who was working in Warsaw. And he helped me look up some records and realize that, you know, my family's last name was Chapnik and not Levy, which is something my cousin told me, but I didn't quite believe. So, yeah, the Kanish really led me to the truth, to the past, my family's past. What... Um, I mean, and of course, in the classic and uh, roots, the the thing that started so many people on you know, that nineteen seventies um, uh, television series based on the book by Alex Haley about um, chase, tracing his African roots. You know, he he knew two words of African. I believe that's what was the sort of thing that allowed him or of the language, not African, of the language from the place where his descendants were from, and that's what sort of allowed him to trace the whole story back. Um, and so for you, it ultimately was this lump of potatoes surrounded by dough. Yeah, I'd say it was the catalyst for further exploration and in wanting to know really what my connection to the Kanish was, why it mattered so much and why its disappearance irked me so much, what was behind it, what that meant to be something from the quote-unquote old country. Well, so you you almost had this personal identification with the Kanish. You saw some of yourself in the Kanish. Uh, I guess you could put it that way. Yeah, when it, well, what happened is my grandmother at the end of her life moved to the senior housing place in Brighton Beach. So she was very close to Mrs. Stahls and that every visit to her was a visit to Mrs. Stahls. And vice versa. So there was no such thing as visiting my grandmother without bringing knishes. And when my grandmother passed away, I still clung to Mrs. Stalls as this kind of gateway to memories of her and a way to conjure her. So, yeah, I felt very closely allied with the Kanish. So what happened? Tell me the story of, of the day you showed up and it was gone. Well, so it was a November day in... I'd say 2005, and I had been, you know, my visits to Brighton Beach were fewer and fewer, but I still went there every so often, and I, so I biked down to the beach, like a half hour bike ride from my house, and I get there, and this is, like, this is how to mark arrival at the beach, buying a Kanish. I did that, 
um, I park my bike and I see all these flags, like these sort of grand opening kind of flags in front of the store. And I realized, and as you said, the shop was for 70 years beneath the elevated subway. But when I arrived that day, I saw that it, it had become, in fact, a subway sandwich shop. Oh. Yep. Um, so I was flabbergasted. I mean, what could I do? I sort of walked around. I, mm. I went in. I, I mean, I asked a few questions, but I was really kind of shell-shocked, and I just left. Um, I looked for some other snack, and, um, yeah, I went to the beach. What could I do? But that's what spurred research. I called around, and I spoke to Mike Conti, ultimately, who was the owner of Conti's Pasta in New Jersey, in Vineland, New Jersey, which is a town historically known for Jewish chicken farmers. But he owns a pasta factory, and he had purchased the Kanish recipe. So the Kanish was in exile. But I felt like it was in good hands, and that he was still shipping the Kanishes back to New York. So I followed the trail. and um, under, yeah, the, under the brand of Mrs. Stahl's? Yeah, and they were supposed to come with these little signs that said Mrs. Stahl's, but I never saw them with the signs. And they were being sold at places like Murray's Bagel Shop and so forth. Hmm in bagel shops and, you know, in, in New York City, in the five boroughs. Um, I did more recently speak to Steve Tufo, who was a distributor, who was a distributor for Mrs. Stahl's and still is. I mean, he's a distributor for Conti's, too. And he, you know, he said the really the amounts of knishes declined, the orders declined, and there's a different kind of, a uh, different process for making foods now, making these knishes, and they're, um, they're delivered par-baked often, mm-hmm. so there's, they're not really baked on-site. They're war- more like warmed up on-site. So it's, I mean, things have evolved. It's a different... Um, people don't have a need to make all these foods in their own shop. It, it's no longer cost-effective in many cases. So they're still making Mrs. Stahl's knishes, but it's changed a bit. You can still get that knish. You can, technically, although... You don't, like you don't think it's any good? Well... I wouldn't say that. I'd say it's not the same as the Kanish Mrs. Stahl's granddaughters make. And there is a guy in Florida who was interested in starting up a Kanish factory under the Mrs. Stahl's name. And he even was looking into buying it from, he had an option to purchase the Stahl's recipe from, from Mike Conti. I haven't heard back yet. I, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard from him recently, but um, he's in the book too. So it just shows there. And he started a Facebook page for Mrs. Stahl's Kanishes and they're about, and more than 2,000 likes. But I think you're right. I think the moment of what it was and now what it is is just this nostalgia thing that's not going to be, you know, for the peasantry to fill their bellies at a low cost. I mean, is, is that in fact what it was? Well, that's, you know, historically, yeah, push carts on the Lower East Side. People would grab a Kanish for lunch. Um, and what, what this, would they, what's the proper way to eat it? With mustard. You, you cut it open or... You can put the mustard. I mean, it depends on where you are, right? I mean, and what kind of knish you have. I would really advise with mustard. But that I met these women in Minnesota who don't eat it, who would never think to eat it with mustard. I mean, that's a regionalism, I think. Do they stick but, a bratwurst in it? I mean... No, bro. I mean, I guess you could. I, I'm not into that. I, I like to preserve, you know, at least... All right, now, we, we're, we've been avoiding something here, though. What's that? What is that travesty that is sold on um, hot dog carts in New York that's called a knish? What is that thing? 
I wouldn't, you know, those are fighting words, Alan. That, I think, I think you're talking about the square yellow fried Coney Island Kanish, which is the Cabela's Kanish. And um, we're just, we're not too far away from the Kanish crisis of 2013, which began right on the cusp of Hanukkah and Thanksgiving, or Thanksgivinga, and lasted till almost Passover in 2014, so about five months. And there was public outcry. I mean, this story went out on the AP wire. I don't know the story. Explain it to me. What are you talking about? No, the story, there was a Kanish crisis. Um, There was a factory, there was a a fire at the Gabilas factory, which is now in Copaig, Long Island. The factory actually got its start on the Lower East Side on Forsyth Street, and it moved to Williamsburg in the 20s. It was there till 2006, right after Mrs. Stalls went into exile. Gabilas also went into exile, in my opinion, in Copaig on Long Island. But there was a factory in their fire. Uh, yeah, there was a fire in their factory, rather, and the the machinery was out of commission. So for a number of months, there were no no square conditions to be had, not at Katz's Deli, really not anywhere. You know, occasionally someone would find a box at a Wegmans somewhere in the south, but um, some woman auctioned some off on eBay. Um, it was a tough time. So you're saying were- every Kanish, every one of those square Kanishes is from the same place? Uh, pretty much. Okay. I mean, Noah Wildman, who I mentioned, did make some square Kanishes. So did the um, culinary, the kosher culinary but- center in Brooklyn. And now they're back? Or did the fact that yeah, they were... Um, back in action. No, no, back in action. Did, was, there, was there a demand? It did, or did maybe some of the hot dog vendors realize they didn't need those knishes anymore? No, no, there was great demand. I mean, there was also a Kanish crisis, small Kanish crisis in the 90s when then-Mayor Giuliani regulated the... Um, he was putting harsh regulations on sidewalk vendors. Mm-hmm. They sent types of carts machinery that had to be used to sell potato, potato-based food. So that was a tough time for Gabilas too. And I think then we saw the Kanish population diminish on street carts. But, um, no, they came back. They're back. But, They're back but hold on shop. now. I think oh, you're also – but you're also defending that – to me, that's not – so you think that's a good product? To me, that's – is that even a Kanish? I mean, I, what – definitely a Kanish. I mean – Look, I grew up on round knishes, but I definitely see the merits of the square. But it's not just the shape. It's that the, the Mrs. Stalls, the Yonah Schimmel knish that I know as a knish has a almost almost like a thin pizza-like dough around it, whereas that thing has this weird gummy hide. The square one's got that weird yellow gummy it's, hide. Well, it's potato on potato. But I'd say, who are we to say there can only be one kind of knish? But, I mean, there are different kinds of apples. There are different kinds of pears. There are even different kinds of watermelons. Why should the knish be restricted to it? Some a, watermelons are sweet and good, and some, you know, taste like a hard sponge. And the, the Mrs. Stahl's knish you know, that you describe has onions, and it's got a, you know, a, a body to it. The other one tastes like an extruded, you know, sauce. Well, I think you're, you're leading into one of the big issues I, I've found in the sphere, which is this allegiance to round versus square or square versus round. And I'd say it's one of those quintessential Jewish and Talmudic questions. <laughs> so um, in that way, yet again, the Kanish epitomizes Jewish life. I'm shocked that you're even defending that square thing. I'm shocked that you're so 
vehement about I, it. To me, that's not a Kanish. I don't even, I have very little respect for it. I've had, a, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've had it at those exact times when I thought, what, what is going to fill my stomach for the least amount of money? And that's when I've had those things. Um, there's also a lot of, some kind of grease in there. All right. Um, so what is, take us back, you, you said you made, at, at the epilogue of your book, Starts in Vineland. Is this what you're talking about, that you went to find what was left of the, Mrs. Stahl's legacy? Um, I was in contact, yeah, I was in contact with Mike Conti, and I was trying yet again to organize a visit. I didn't make it there, I mean, that's one part of the pilgrimage I didn't, I wasn't able to accomplish in live, in person, but, um, but I think, you know, what's interesting with Conti's is they became, their big product became gluten-free, gluten-free pasta. So the Kanish is no longer so important to them. And it's not their cultural heritage. It was just another income stream. It was pretty easy to adopt. Do you think that this, this story could end with you being the one to purchase the rights to the Mrs. Dahl's Kanish? Um... You know, for a while I did think about making knishes. I went, there's this great food incubator place up in Harlem called Hot Bread Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I was really impressed with all the work with women who have come from all different countries and learned to bake and make their native foods, which are sold at green markets. But I think I'm really more of the chronicler. I'm I'm happy to be the world's leading knish expert. Yeah. I'm not sure I need to be the leading baker. I... I'd love to see someone take it over and bring it back. And I do think we're on the cusp of a Kanish renaissance because we're still in economic tough times. People look for cheap food that has meaning. Well, you got the dollar, you know, the, the rise of the dollar slice of pizza in New York, which I do not understand how it's economically possible. Yeah, I just had one of those last night, actually. Yeah. But, you know, I was going to, there's a, right down the block, there's a $2 and 75 slice of $2.75 slice of pizza. And I think it's just different clientele. You know, so um, I think there's a lot there. And I don't think the Kanish is going anywhere. It has a long history and a lot of promise. Do you have an you estimate on how many Kanishes are being consumed yearly or worldwide or in New York or something? Um, you know, there's not, there's not, no reporting from like a national Kanish board. Yeah. Per se. But, um, Gabilas seems put out about, I think it's a few million a year. But I mean, and we have no way of knowing how many Kanishas people consume in their homes. And um, there are a few other leading Kanish concerns and many delis. I see many making more and more, and even Jewish festivals in Idaho will serve Kanishas. Well, do you think, to to what extent is the name uh, sort of one of its keys? It's such a cute name, the Kanish. Yes, well, thank you. I think so too. It's um, it's important to note it's one syllable and that the K is pronounced. I, you know, that's knish. one of say it. Knish. Okay. That's um, that's one of the things that really sets the knish apart. It hasn't assimilated in that way. And um, Mel Brooks, I think, said that words that start with K are inherently funny. Right. So it has another thing going for it. Um, it is. It's an outsider and. You know, there's it can be a bummer to be an outsider, but there's also strength in that. Well, you identi- you do identify with this with this little thing. So, yeah, how long was it from when you realized that retail location was closing to when you took up your pen and started this project? 
What, what year was it that you that it closed, and when was the book deal made? Well, 2005 is when I witnessed the Subway sandwich shop mm-hmm. in the place of Mrs. Stahl's. I published some articles about it in the Brooklyn paper and the Jerusalem report early 2006. And I think the book deal, um, I think, was 2011. Was there um, resistance? Were, were there people who thought the world does not need a book on the Kanish? Am I saying with two syllables? I, I won't hold. Uh, don't Knish. worry about it. Knish. Perfect. Perfect. It sounds like a sneeze a little. Knish. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Bless you. Um, they, no. I think um, several agents were really interested. This. Um, I got a grant from the Hadassah Brandeis Institute mm. at Brandeis, and they really helped. You know, they were huge champions, invited me to speak to their board, pitched it to their press. And I think there was there was definite interest. I didn't find any. You know, one agent said there were maybe too many puns in the initial proposal. Yeah. But even he thought it had, it had legs. <laughs> um, are you going to do a book on Bialy's next or as your... Well, you know, you're a chronicler, not a cook, right now. So, what's your what's the next yeah. project? Well, the book on Bialy's is done. Um, mm. Mimi Sheridan wrote that, and um, it's called the Bialy Eaters. And she, I am pleased to say, we have the same tour guide. And though I'm, I don't believe she traces her roots to to Bialystok. What do you mean? So the that, same tour, oh, the same tour guide in so Poland. In Poland, yeah. So, um, that was a great, you know, that I felt honored by that. Um, next up for me, I'm doing some research on the pomegranate, and I'm interested in going back to the source of some things. I mean, gefilte, I was thinking recently about gefilte fish. Right, because there's uh, a shortage this year, famously A1 story, front page story right. in the New York Times. Yeah, right, another shortage, so therefore I can help defend the gefilte fish, perhaps. But, and there was uh, a lot written in that article that people were saying, you know, it's one of those things that you have on the table that nobody actually likes. Right. I mean, it's time to champion the gefilte. People love to hate that, too. And but um, and there's a great song about gefilte fish. I teach this class at the new school about Jewish food through can song. You, and Can you sing it to us? Uh, no, but you, I can um, give you the URL so your listeners what have is a it? list. What's the URL? Well, I'll um, oh, you'll put it on the thing. No. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's beautiful. Adrian, the late great Adrian Cooper, may she rest in peace, had this beautiful song about gefilte fish. And I found three movies about gefilte fish, so it may be time to look into that. Um, I'm interested also in writing a, converting this legend of the Kanish to a kid's story. Mm. But, you know, it does bring up this question, you talk about gefilte fish, I hesitate, because there are great Jewish foods, you know, that, that certainly things that I love. I mean, I like even um, what do you call it? Um, the 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 hearty stew stuff. Um, cholent. Cholent. I really like a nice stick to your. That's like you know it's literally made of ribs and it sticks to your ribs. And um, um, I don't even know if there's ribs. There's almost anything in that. And but is Jewish food? I know I started this off by asking our knishes good. You know, it's it's not Italian food. It's not Greek food. Although of course you know there's Jews in all those places or were. Um, Still are. Yes. Smattering here and there. Um, 
is is Jewish food need more defenders? I mean, is because it's like, and also this. I mean, this is a bigger question, and we're almost out of time. But the um, you know the the Jewish deli, which has become the definer of what is Jewish food, is not necessarily an accurate picture. It's just what one kind of Jewish food was. Is yeah, Jewish I, food good? I guess is the question. Oh, I. Um, <laughs> I, I don't like that question. Well, it's not I, the Mediterranean diet. You know, you don't see... It's, well, depends on what Jewish food you're talking about, because Jewish food is really anything. I mean, right. Joan, Joan Nathan had this book about um, Jew, a search for Jewish food in France. Uh, Claudia Rodin has written about Jewish food all over the world. I, think, I guess my question and what the point may be is, like, it, has it been... Um, why is there this persistence of that one version um, of Jewish food being thought to be it when, in fact, there is so much out there? Well, I think it's changing. And you, um, you asked if there need to be more defenders of Jewish food. I think there need to be fewer attackers of Jewish food. I'm, I went to this amazing Passover Seder this year with three different kinds of haroset and traditions from countries all over the world. You know, Afghani Jews bring the um, shank bone, like tease each other with the shank bone during the meal. Sephardi Jews whip each other with scallions. I mean, there's a lot more traditions. It's just that, especially in New York, Jews of Easter are, tend to be of Eastern European descent. That's the majority, but that's not the whole story. And deli food isn't the whole story. I mean, you know, David Sachs's great book, Save the Deli, right. looks at right. those establishments, but. I mean, we're, tra- we're a culture and a society in transition. Our greater society and also Jewish, Jewish society is at a real crossroads. And I think for it to be vibrant, we have to embrace, you know, not just Kanishas, but Kanishan, what I call Kanishan cousins, like Jewish foods of other backgrounds, burekas, samosas, other, other foods and Jewish traditions. And accept the fact that Jewish food traditions are very wide-reaching, and not limited to a single country or area of the world. Well, I do think that um, shank, as a uh, shank bone by the Mel Brooks standard, is a funny word, as like Kanish. Um, and I, I thank you for for giving us this great history. And if if, if I come across as a attacker of the Kanish, I don't mean to. Um, I am only an attacker of a certain one kind of Kanish that I don't like. I just wanted to hear the defense, given that the man who sells more smoked fish in New York than any other was sort of attacking them. But maybe that's just his, um, his uh, shank bone to grind. Um, so We're going to go head-to-head, by the way. Fish versus Mark Federman, Federman and I are going to go head-to-head, Kanish versus fish. I, I think this would be a great event. Um, certainly <laughs> yours would be the less expensive option because you need to take out a loan before you go into Russ and Daughters sometimes. <laughs> Although the, interestingly, the the really the fish that built that market, which was the schmaltz herring, you know that it really was actually the the if you look at his book, the forebears who started Russ and Daughters were really selling herring out of a barrel, and that was the cheapest protein that they could sell, um, and you know with the schmaltz, which made it weighty, so. That and they still sell those herring there, and they're actually the most reasonably priced things still that they have. So it is possible to go into Russ and Daughters and, and get walk out with something for a good price. Anyway, I know I'm winding it up. So I, I thank you so much for, for being with us. I wish you luck with the book. And um, 
and to uh, listeners, keep tuning in and listening and downloading from New Books and Food. Um, I'm going to be doing more interviews. Joanna Harkin's going to be doing more. We're adding more people on soon. And it's just going to be a, a feast of delicious <laughs> podcasts. So until next time, I have no, I have no catchphrase. Keep. Keep eating. Keep reading. All right. Good. Bye. Bye. Thanks.